Welcome to episode two of Between Two Docs. I'm your co-host, Dr. Dominic Valentino, and with me again is Dr. Harris Cohen. Um, this again is uh, our um, direct-to-you video, which features topics on COVID and uh, is actually devoid of politics and um, hysteria and media hype. So uh, we're two docs taking on COVID in various environments. Uh, it is currently May 24th, 2020. It's important to know the date when we uh, do these because things do change in time. We do appreciate all the email and comments that we've gotten over the last uh, week and a half or so. We're going to get into a few of them today. We do read each one and um, we, we try to reply as we can, but we certainly can't get to all of them with a personal reply. But, but please know we do read them and we do value your input and feedback. Um, so we'll start off with our first segment, which is hot topics in the news that uh, folks may have heard about this week or, or had some thoughts of. And uh, I'll turn it over to Dr. Cohen for the uh, first headline. Thanks, Dr. Valentino. So we're going to try and parse the news that comes at us fast and furious and try to introduce a couple topics that ring true with us each week. Uh, the first news topic that uh, struck a nerve in a positive way for the most part for me was the vaccine information from Moderna, M-O-D-E-R-N-A, which came out within the past seven to 10 days. What they showed is they are introducing a unique type of virus that's never been used before. It's actually an mRNA virus. And what they initially have shown is that in 45 subjects have were given vaccine, it's a two vaccine series. They only reported on eight of those subjects so far. But what they showed is that two weeks after the second dose of this vaccine was given, there was an antibody response that was as good as those who have actually had the virus themselves. The antibodies were neutralizing, meaning they killed the virus in the lab. So in vitro, when they look at these antibodies and throw them up against coronavirus, they were effective. So super promising. They did three different dosages, low, medium, and high dose, all of which created a robust immune response. Uh, the questions are, and this is a very early preprint, is this was only eight subjects. As Dr. Valentino and I know, when we're, looking at, when we're looking at trials, we want that N, the number of people in the study, to be as high as possible. So an N of eight is not something that we would you know, hang our hats on just yet. In addition, the people who were tested were healthy between the ages of 18, 50, 18 and 55, which is not necessarily a real-world mix of what we're seeing here. Yeah. However, the other piece is how long-lasting are these antibodies? That's the ultimate question. We're creating antibodies. They're neutralizing, but do they last? So super promising. We have a lot of companies, a lot of great smart people out there racing to bring a vaccine to you. This was sort of the first data that came out on a unique virus, which was promising, but you got to take it with a grain of salt when you get down to the nitty-gritty. Dr. Valentino. Yeah, I think um, that is a, a uh, head-on um forward-looking progress for vaccines. I know in the past, you know, you've seen, we've talked about two to four years before we get vaccines. We're, we're talking, we're months into it. So this is very promising, but again, very early. Um, so stay tuned on that topic. There's going to be more to come there for sure. Um, I think um, Dr. Cohen was also going to talk a little bit about the reinfection um, that occurred in South Korea on a recent study that was uh, put out. So I'll, I'll turn it back over to him for that. Yes, yeah, so the, the other interesting study that came out in the past couple of weeks is there's been a big concern about reinfection with coronavirus. Again, we are learning new things every day. What we saw 
prior to this study information coming out is that people who were very sick and tested positive initially would recover. They would go home. They would be tested for virus again, and they would test negative. And then sometime later, they would test positive again. This was very, very confounding to people looking at these numbers. Why would you go positive, negative, positive? Were they truly reinfected? Could they reinfect others at day 45 or day 60 after going home from the hospital? Good news is it does not look like these folks are being reinfected. In fact, there's two issues going on here. One is, was the negative test that was sandwiched between two positive tests truly negative, or was it what we call a false negative? A false negative is a test that comes back showing negativity when there's actually presence of disease there. So was it falsely negative? Possibly, but more likely when they were tested again and came up positive, the positive test was only detecting genetic material of the coronavirus. Not infective material, not transmissible material, but the presence of material. So just because you find virus doesn't mean it's infectious. So what we're seeing is it is not reinfection based on the study out of South Korea, but really the presence of viral particulate that can last for probably a long time. So presence does not equal infection. More good news from my standpoint. Absolutely. Uh, you're going to see more, I think, coming out of this too. Uh, there's some recent studies being done on asymptomatic carriers and what that means in terms of patients uh, being, uh, or the asymptomatic carrier being contagious to others. And this might go back to that same concept of perhaps they have uh, evidence of the genetic material, but not complete viruses that are actually infectious at that point. So um, a, a great topic that we're going to learn more about in the coming months, I'm certain. And speaking about neutralizing antibodies, so that's what we saw in this Moderna trial, the creation of neutralizing or antibodies that prevent the virus from replicating. Dr. Valentino has another little news update here as well. Yeah, so a few weeks ago, I wrote about this. Uh, if you uh, read the column I, I put in uh, on 47D11, the, jokingly, it sounds a lot like uh, a character from Star Wars, but um, it's actually a, a different take on the concept that uh, Dr. Cohen was just discussing. So instead of giving a vaccine where the person's immune system then responds and makes antibodies, this is giving just the antibody itself um, that can neutralize uh, parts of the virus. Uh, in this one case, this, this is neutralizing the, the foot processes, the little parts where it attaches to cells and preventing them from attaching to the cells. Um, so essentially, um, this is a, another approach that could conceivably be done in sicker patients. Let's say they come into the hospital um, and they need other therapies. This is also akin to what the theory is behind giving convalescent plasma, um, which also contains antibodies in and of itself that theoretically will directly bind up the uh, virus and prevent it from infecting. So... Another promising pathway, we, we've struck out a couple times on things that we thought might work. So when we hear about neutralizing antibodies as a treatment, promising and going after, as you said, those spike proteins, those little foot, those ugly little proteins that we see in that picture, that rendering of coronavirus that's everywhere. It's those ugly little spikes, but that's what makes our body recognize this virus the most. Tell me a little bit, there's, there's a lot of new words that have been thrown at us. We have flattening the curve, we have social distancing, we have r naught. Tell me a little bit about this new phrase, happy hypoxemia. What, what does that mean? Yeah, this is one I'm asked about a lot, and I see it firsthand. Um, so typically, um, hypoxemia refers to uh, a patient's oxygen saturation uh, being low. Saturation is measured usually on a little probe on your finger, and it tells you what percent of your 
hemoglobin has oxygen attached to it. Uh, and then there's also dissolved oxygen in your blood, which can be measured through what's called a blood gas. Um, generally, when the oxygen levels are low, the response to that is several fold, uh, one of which is you get a release of stress hormones. So you tend to get um, very uh, agitated, anxious, it's epinephrine or adrenaline being released. Um, and that's typical in other cases. Now, what we've noticed in, uh, in severe coronavirus infection, you'll have patients whose oxygen saturations, normally we should be above 92, 94% or higher. These patients might be in the 80s and relatively not aware of it, feel fine. Uh, I've been told by patients who are, have oxygen saturations of 80, 82%. When you send me home, doc, I feel great, ready to go. And yet they're on uh, high flow nasal cannula oxygen and other supportive agents. So there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect there and there's some theories behind that. One of the big ones is that instead of their lungs just totally filling in with fluid, causing the um, low oxygen levels, they're actually having constriction of the blood vessels in the lungs as a separate phenomenon, which can also um, cause some relative hypoxemia. And then that is kind of one of the processes going on here. But it's an interesting phenomenon we're seeing here that usually in, in bad pneumonias, um, you know, we, we don't see. Um, so that's the happy hypoxemic. That's what it refers to. Yeah, it's interesting. Typically in my office, in the outpatient world, when someone's hypoxemic, they're not so happy. Mm -hmm. uh, their lips are blue. They're not thinking clearly. They think they're feeling better than they are, yet they're breathing 40 times a minute. And those are the folks who are going to go to the ER and wind up under the good care of Dr. Valentino. So this construct of happy hypoxemia is new to all of us. And patients getting huge doses of oxygen through nasal cannula and laying on their bellies and playing with their phones with an x-ray that's completely whited out is a confounding thing for us as well. And it's something we're not used to seeing. Certainly. So that was our little news segment. Thank you, Dr. Valentino. Now we're going to pivot over to our questions. And as Dr. Valentino mentioned, thank you so much. We've received uh, many, many emails to our uh, between two docs, TWA, TWO, not the airline, TWODocs at gmail.com and continue to send those. And while we do see all of them, we can't get to every single one each week, but we will do our best. Uh, one of the first questions that came up uh, in the past several weeks is a patient asked about CPAP. CPAP is a machine that people with sleep apnea use at home to help air get into their systems to prevent them from going through periods of what we call apnea or no breathing overnight, which can lead to multiple medical issues. So the question is, hey, I'm on CPAP. Should I stay on this? We live in a, we're in a pandemic. And what happens if I go to the hospital? Will I stay on the CPAP while I'm there? Is CPAP helpful? in the time of a pandemic. I'm gonna hand that over to Dr. Valentino. Sure, so CPAP is CPAP, stands for Continuous Positive Airway Pressure, and you'll probably be on it at home because you have obstructive sleep apnea syndrome. If you get uh, an upper respiratory infection, um, sometimes your sleep is, is definitely gonna be more affected, and especially if you wear a CPAP mask, whether it's a nasal-only device or a nasal uh, mouth device, um, it depends on how well you'll tolerate it based on your congestion. In general, we would recommend you continue wearing the CPAP as much as you can, because uh, when you do not wear it, your obstructive sleep apnea syndrome is not being treated, and that results in low oxygen levels while you sleep, which could be harmful in other ways to your heart, uh, to your brain, to your kidneys, but also certainly affects the immune system. Um, if you are feeling short of breath from just having COVID pneumonia and you're at home, you really should be going to the emergency room. 
shortness of breath associated with it is one of the signs of worsening um, COVID pneumonia and certainly is one where you need to go get checked out. So if you go to the hospital and they decide to admit you um, and you tell them you wear a CPAP at night, you may be getting put on it or you may not. Um, part of it depends on how sick you are, what your specific uh, needs are, and then also in the hospital setting, CPAP use or BiPAP use or any of those tight-fitting masks like that are considered aerosol-generating uh, procedures. And so that means there's a risk of the, uh, your secretions and the virus leaking out around all that pressure that's, that's blowing at your face. Um, so just be wary that each hospital will have different policies on how they, um, they address that and how they use it. Um, but that's sort of the overall answer to the question about CPAP use with COVID. So people on CPAP at home, which is many of our mutual patients, tell them stop it. Stay with it unless you talk to your doctor first. And if you're not feeling well, please reach out to your doctor as well, because you might be at somewhat of a higher risk by having apnea to begin with for worsening pulmonary outcomes. So do reach out to your primary care doctor and we'll do our best to sort of triage you accordingly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we have another question that was submitted. Um, this one has more to do with the concept of um, autoimmune diseases and how uh, that affects your risk uh, profile uh, for COVID. So I'm sure this is one that uh, Dr. Cohen gets asked a lot. Yeah, we, we, we both deal with lots of patients who have both autoimmune disease and what's called immunosuppression. In other words, a weakened immune system, either because you have a disease that creates that, or you're taking medications that suppresses your immune response. So those of you undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, people with rheumatologic diseases such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis are often on you know, immunosuppressing drugs. People with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, and organ transplant recipients, just to name a few, mm -hmm. all considered uh, immunosuppressed. And I would probably throw smokers into this mix as well, so more reason to quit. But yeah, immunosuppression and autoimmune diseases are gonna set you up at risk for all viruses, not just coronavirus. You have to be super careful to protect yourself, especially now, against viral transmission. And that involves lots of hand washing, wearing a mask, making sure that you're interacting with those who are wearing a mask if you're getting out, but really social distancing and staying at home as much as you can. Interestingly, while it may set you up for more viral transmission in the early going, there might, and this is suggested, be some help down the line. What we see in people who are very sick, unfortunately, is an immune response that actually leads to organ destruction and worse outcomes. If you're immunosuppressed or taking immunosuppressive agents, maybe you won't manifest an immune response that large and it may lead to better outcomes. However, the moral of the story is if you are immunosuppressed, if you've been called immunosuppressed, if you have an autoimmune disease, you need to take every precaution possible. You don't have to say trapped, you can get outside, but you'll be very reasonable. You wanna wash your hands very frequently with soap and water for 20 seconds. You want to make sure those who you're interacting with are wearing a mask. You wearing the mask is important as well to protect them, but more so that they're protecting you. Yeah, and, and those are exactly the things that we will tell folks coming into the hospital when they're being discharged, you know, and that's general precautions. That's not just COVID. That's everyday life, um, especially if you're going to be around people who are sick and you're immune suppressed. So those are good points, Dr. Cohen. And we know this virus is pesky. We know it affects lungs, kidneys, neurologic system, gastro, gastrointestinal tract. Mm -hmm. um, tract. Now we're 
really seeing a lot more data on its effect on the vascular system. Those are your arteries and veins and small blood vessels. So the question I want to ask Dr. Valentino is what his thoughts are on how this affects the vascular system as far as inflammation and clot formation. Should we all be starting an aspirin? Should we all be starting Plavix? What should we do to prevent clots if we're at home? What should we do when we're being discharged from the hospital? Yeah, uh, definitely an evolving thing. And I think over the last three to four weeks, the medical community worldwide has learned a lot about this. There's a number of published case series. Uh, and, and these are primarily in hospitalized sicker patients. Um, however, it carries over to when they do recover and get home. Um, the blood clotting system is definitely affected by this. And we're not sure if it's the direct effect of the virus or just because the overabundance of immune function leading to that. Um, however, um, Many hospitals have now adopted what's called high uh, intensity uh, DVT prophylaxis. DVT is deep vein thrombosis. That's a clot in your leg or arms that could travel to your lungs. Um, so that is becoming a rapid, um, I don't wanna say standard of care, but places are adopting it because they realize it's a problem in their hospitalized patients. Equally, they're adopting plans to, when they send the patient home, depending on the patient's risk profile and uh, particular um, comorbidities, they may send you home on uh, two to six weeks of um, anticoagulation for DVT prophylaxis. Now, when I say anticoagulation, I mean things that prevent the blood clotting system. Aspirin and Plavix are actually not anticoagulants. They're antiplatelet agents. Platelets are part of what happens when a clot is forming. They are elements in the blood made by the bone marrow that support clotting. But aspirin and Plavix uh, are technically not anticoagulants. They work to help make the platelets not as uh, not activate or be sticky so they can't come together. So generally we are not putting people on um, prophylactic aspirin or Plavix and certainly don't want people doing that at home on their own. Um, so that's another one where, you know, if you're not certain about this, don't self-treat. Make sure you're talking to, uh, you know, a professional about this. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, you know, there's news bits that come up and, you know, we're all reaching for ways to prevent disease and stay healthy. But, you know, grabbing uh, Uncle Jerry's uh, leftover Plavix and grabbing a baby aspirin may not be the right, the right choice. Uh, obviously, all these drugs can have significant side effects if you touch base with your, your, your medical provider first. And, you know, it's, this is Memorial Day weekend. Some people are headed to the, to the beach, and with the beach is the boardwalk and pizza shops and all the good things that we, we love. Uh, so question is, you know, my son or daughter is going to be taking a summer job working at counter service at a pizza place down there. Uh, is that safe? I mean, what's, uh, what are they, what kind of precautions should be taken? Yeah, we're starting to reopen. Uh, we, we've seen photos of beaches and boardwalks and we've seen crowds that uh, may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And then we've seen people doing the right thing with social distancing. So look, we have to get back to some semblance of life. And in the summertime is probably the time where we're going to get back to the boardwalks. And uh, I know my family loves going to Ocean City. So, you know, if my son said to me, hey, dad, I, I got a job at the pizza place working counter service. What advice would I give to him? I, you know, we need these jobs. They're vital jobs. Counter service in and of itself does prevent you from interacting directly with folks. You're going to have some separation from the people coming up to you on the boardwalk after the beach, ordering their pizza, ordering their popcorn, etc. You have to be very careful with those who are behind you as well. These are crowded small shops in the summertime. Hand washing rules the day. I think you're going to see a lot of plexiglass dividers possibly up at some of these places to create a barrier between you and the folks you're serving. But really, you have to worry about the folks behind you as well. If you're not feeling well, please don't report to work. If someone's not feeling well who you're working with, please talk to your boss and maybe they should go home that day. But really, frequent hand washing, 
distancing as best as you can in a tight environment, staying distance from the people who are doing the ordering, but there's counter service jobs that need to be filled. And, you know, the boardwalk will be hopping hopefully with people wearing masks and distancing as well as they can. But this is a vital part of getting back to where we were four or five months ago. Yeah, agreed. I think there has to be a smart application of um, blending what the economy needs and people need with the, the science that we know. And that's probably a good example of doing it the way you described. And, you know, the, the common question, we've seen many permutations of this is I have parents, they're 75 years old, dad has diabetes, mom has this, that, the other thing, you know, we've been staying away. Um, when can we see them? How can we see them? I miss my parents. My parents miss our kids. And what, what's a responsible way to do the right thing without putting my parents at risk? Yeah. So again, I think there's this um, missed notion that things are behind us and we're on the downslide. And in certain states, that is true. We've seen a downward trend of cases, although cases have certainly not dropped to zero. In other states, there is still an increase uh, in, in cases being um, reported. And I think, you know, you, you need to uh, think that even if you've, for the last nine, 10 weeks, done really great social distancing, um, there's nothing different about now versus then in terms of the virus being prevalent in the communities and being transmissible. And your parents who are in their 70s, I know mine are, um, are still at risk. So while I'm happy to talk to mom and dad on the phone, while I'm happy to uh, you know FaceTime or, or Zoom with them, I still am keeping my distance because I know that it could be me giving it to them, you know, and, and I just don't want to see that happen. We know statistically that people above the age of 65 are uh, certainly at higher risk of uh, death or severe complications from COVID. So I think all those things are still need to be kept into perspective. You know, the weather's nicer. People want to get out and do things. There are ways to do things and still be, you know, separate. Um, I've certainly uh, gone to my parents' house and from a distance been able to talk to them and um, see them face to face that way. So you got to be creative about it, but you have to be smart. Yeah, agreed. The, the only thing worse than a sick parent is a sick parent that you got sick. So again, outdoors is your friend. If you can socially distance and both wear masks, you can absolutely be in the same environment um but it just doesn't make sense to have them in your house and have a dinner party just yet yeah so i think um you know this is another tie into these questions about getting the economy open people have things they need done in their home construction projects repairs um what about if you're getting something done in the home by a contractor and um you know do you need to stay out of the home should you put things off i mean what does that look like yeah, it's a question we get asked very frequently with construction and cleaning services and, you know, deliveries, et cetera, what, what's appropriate. So, you know, the, the answer comes back always to common sense. If something is broken or emergently needs to be repaired, it's 95 degrees out, your air conditioning went down, by all means, appropriately have someone in your house to fix it. Is now the time to demo your kitchen and get those beautiful Viking appliances you've always had your eye on? Probably not. So the, the contractors know what they're doing. They're going to be masked. They're going to be bootied up. They're probably wearing some headwear and gloves. They're used to this. They've been in people's homes since the beginning of this for emergency repairs. I would let that mentality simmer for a little while longer and really focus on what needs to be fixed, what needs to be addressed. Do you need the cleaning service in your house yet? Probably not. I know you're going to stay away from them. 
However, we still worry about transmission from people that you really have no control over. We're all trying to do our best, but you don't know if they were just on the boardwalk three days before, you know, hugging uh, 45 people at their family reunion. So if you can't control it perfectly, try to control it as best as you can. Focus on what needs to be done right now, not elective house procedures. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, you're going to see a lot of our recommendations come back to a little bit of applying common sense with what we know as of today. And um, I think this is the example of that. Um, we don't want people uh, getting ill from respiratory conditions otherwise because of the heat in their home in the summer. So again, it's practicality and, uh, and timing. Yeah, speaking of the heat, uh, another popular question. Hey, summer's here. We're going to have high 80s in our part of the world next week, which is very warm. Uh, we've had a cool April. So, you know, tell me about warm weather. Tell me about the sun. Tell me, is it going to destroy this virus? Yeah, so the answer is uh, probably not relying totally on the sun and the heat. Um, we'll talk about the heat itself. So I did a little experiment um, a few weeks ago, and I wrote about this in, in my, my post. Um, I looked at uh, countries near the equator around the world and looked at their average temperature, which uh, a few weeks ago they were averaging somewhere in the mid to upper 70s or higher. And I looked at the virus. Now, we don't have any great studies on the uh, high heat um, stability of um, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID. But its cousin, SARS-CoV, which caused SARS, is another coronavirus that was tested some years ago. And it was heat stable up until about 132 to 133 degrees Fahrenheit. So uh, you're never going to get temperatures outside like that unless, you know, perhaps you're in one of the worst days in the desert. Um, but it's generally not going to happen in, in, in temperate areas where people are living, certainly not in uh, most parts of the United States. And uh, so the other thing you can look at, and this is more recent data, over the last week or so, um, there's been an, inf uh, an increase of cases in South America. Uh, in South America, obviously, the, the temperatures, uh, many of those countries closer to the equator, the temperatures are actually warmer than they are in many parts of the U.S. right now. So uh, that is certainly not protecting them from the outbreaks. And I, I, again, would not say that just because it's warmer. The sunlight is another issue because sunlight does generate different uh, ultraviolet uh, light waves, which we know about, and that ultraviolet radiation can... Uh, harm or kill certain bacteria, viruses, and, and fungi. That said, uh, I don't know that we have reliable evidence to say that sunlight alone is going to uh, harm or kill this. Um, but uh, again, it's, it's one of those things where um, time is going to tell as we get more information about the virus. Yeah, the evidence I've seen on the sunlight is that UV ultraviolet C, that, that band can possibly kill viruses, possibly coronavirus. But our sun doesn't emit that. Our sun just has UVA and UVB. And we rarely recommend people go out to the sun to treat their diseases anyway due to the inherent risk of skin cancer. So cancel your vacations to Death Valley this summer, people. It's not going to fix the problem. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, the, the, the last question we have is one that is going to be pre prevalent for, you know, the coming months because this is a changing topic. But it's testing. So... You know, I have symptoms. Uh, I get tested. I, the nasal PCR swab is negative. Do I keep getting retested? What's the rationale there? What, what do we do? Yeah, it's a very common question. And, you know, as doctors, we often say testing is only as good as the results. So if the testing does not give you what we call actionable data, data that you can either change the course or change your decisions, 
testing may not be the most worthwhile thing. So for people not feeling well, all things are sort of COVID until they're proven not COVID. So if they're feeling okay and they're doing well with supportive care, testing for me is not going to change their course. They're going to drink their fluids, have their chicken soup, and maybe use a little Tylenol if they have a fever. However, when we're not sure if they wind up in the emergency room or under Dr. Valentino's care, unfortunately, in the ICU or on a, on, on a medical floor in a hospital, testing can help us differentiate between how we're going to treat that patient from common modalities to some of the things we've been using specifically for coronavirus. So a negative test, remember, does not mean you don't have it. There is up to a 30% false negative. Three out of 10 people who test negative actually have it great with the testing that we have now looking for presence of virus. So if it will possibly change treatment course, we're going to talk about where and how to test. If it's not going to change treatment course, we're going to talk about how to get you better in a supportive way. Yeah. And, and I, the follow-up to that is no, I, you know, there's some questions about, uh, are we just retesting people until they turn positive? No, the answer is not that. And, um, th there's no uh, value in, um, continuing to retest people until they quote turn positive. But what certain industries may be doing is periodically testing their workers or if you have symptoms get tested before you can go back to the workforce. But again, that depends on what and where you work. So if you're a nurse or a doctor taking care of patients, we're getting screened every day as we walk into the hospital. I get my temperature checked and I have to complete a questionnaire. And if I you know, have any symptoms or my temperature's up, I get flagged and I'm gonna go to employee health and I'm gonna get tested. But that's because we can't take the risk of us shifting to other people. So it's a matter of the industry that you're in, too. Exactly. And, and testing definitely has huge epidemi epidemiological uh, value uh, as far as uh, contact tracing and, and following where this disease is. But it's a very complicated picture. And, you know, lean on your doctor's advice for whether testing would help you or not. So thank you. That wraps up our question and answer section. And now we're going to you know, talk a little bit about what's to come in future episodes of Between Two Docs. Dr. Valentino. Sure. So we've got a lot of uh, ideas for guests, and we've had some people reach out to us. I think in our next episode, we're going to try to get uh, a colleague uh, of, of ours that we both know from different um, parts of our lives, uh, Dr. Joshua Barron, who's an emergency medicine physician, and uh, get his perspective on uh, getting regular medical care nowadays, treating regular non-COVID emergencies coming to the hospital, to the ER. Um, we've also got some ideas about getting uh, people who are in the uh, funeral director uh, industry and what that has done to their, um, to their life and their workload. Um, how about, um, you know, sports coaches, kids sports coaches. So we've got some folks maybe lined up there. And uh, Dr. Cohen, Dr. Cohen has also uh, have some contacts that, that may be able to uh, talk about um, a foundation developed for convalescent plasma uh, donors. Um, so there's a lot of interesting folks that we want to bring to the table and get different slices of life and opinions uh, based on what they're seeing. So stay tuned for future episodes to see that. Um, please do continue to send questions and feedback to between2docs at gmail.com. And again, that two is spelled out. Um, and uh, we are going to try and get you one of these episodes out each week. We're both working full-time, so uh, we're doing this as we can, but um, we appreciate your feedback, and we want you to stay well, uh, enjoy some of the summer weather responsibly, and um, we're going to get through this together.